We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. We're talking the impact of the A.J. Green injury and talking roster construction in 2019 drafts with a special guest on Roto-Viz Radio. What's up, Roto-Viz? Hi, everyone. Welcome on into Rotoviz Radio, brought to you by FFB Cast and the FFPC. I'm Dave Cabin, Senior Fantasy Analyst at Rotoviz. We have a special guest tonight, and that is John Lipinski, a lead writer at Rotoviz. He filled in for Matt last year and crushed it, so I'm glad to have him back. John, what's going on, man? Uh, and how excited are you, are you for this coming season? Uh, nothing much, Dave. Thanks for having me on again. I'm, I'm pretty stoked. Um, I've been, I've been drafting a lot, been getting ready and, uh, got some cool stuff coming up here. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready. And you know, the summer, summer's kind of brutal. You just got baseball going on. So, uh, we got the hall of fame game coming up on Thursday. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go, man. Yeah, I know. There's already a lot of talk starting with the, uh, preseason DFS talk, which always cracks me up. But people get <laughs> into that, man, but it's just like, you know, we've been starved for football for so long that it makes sense. You know, I, I have never uh, – I don't do a whole lot of DFS, but the one time I you know got first in like any size of a GPP, I hit like a, a preseason GPP last year for like – with like 4,000 people. But it was a, a $1 entry, so it was like 200 bucks or something. But uh, th- there's an actual edge in the preseason if you pay attention to like what the coaches are saying and, and getting that playing time. So, you know, I, I can see why some of the – of us degenerates get kind of excited about it. Yeah, there's probably more of an edge than ever if you're willing to just do the grunt work. 
um, in the preseason, which definitely seems to be the consensus. And I know some of the guys from talking with them last year did pretty well. I want to say it was week three of the preseason, perhaps, where the starters will play a little bit, but not too much. And then there's some things you can do there. Uh, Anyway, we have a couple of quick news items that we probably need to run through. The first of which is AJ Green suffering an ankle injury, and it looks like he'll be sidelined for six to eight weeks. What was your initial reaction to this, and where do you stand now on how it impacts Green's outlook for the season, but also Tyler Boyd and any other players in that Cincinnati offense? See, I mean, when it first happened, before we knew exactly what was going on, it kind of went from like like sheer panic of like, oh God, he's done for the season, because it was the news was he was being carted off. He slammed his fist against the bench, and everybody just assumed the worst, you know, like season ender there. And then it went to, oh, it's a low ankle sprain, and everybody's saying, oh, maybe he's back for week one. And then it turned into, yeah, it's actually a torn ligament down there, so it's going to be six to eight weeks. So it kind of fell sort of in between there of like not the end of the world, but also not great. Um, You know, for him – Everybody was already worried about injuries. I think this is going to drive his price way down, and justifiably so. There's not much he could do here. I mean, he this was a field from everything I've read that they said was not well prepared. And a right. lot of players were kind of questioning why they were playing there. So it's hard to be like, oh, injury prone AJ Green. Here we go again. Like if they're playing on a crap field, I mean, you know, can't really blame the guy for it. So I actually kind of like the idea of maybe grabbing him when he gets cheap enough, but I don't think his price in the drafts I've seen recently has fallen enough yet uh, to account for the fact that he's going to miss time and maybe be slow when he gets back. So if he starts dropping down to like the round six, seven range, um, depending on like the, the news we hear, then I might start looking at him depending on what, what the doctor's reports are during the preseason here. If he stays up right now, I'm seeing he's still going in like the fourth, fifth. That's too pricey for me. If he's going to be missing time, I'd rather just not take the risk that high in the draft. Um, as for his teammates, Tyler Boyd, we've all seen the splits. I feel like I've seen a billion people on Twitter talking about it. Boyd was more efficient with A.J. Green on the field. But really, we have a sample of like five games where A.J. Green wasn't on the field. And I think at least one of those had Jeff Driscoll in there. Maybe it was more than one. Maybe it was a bunch of them. Uh, we can't really clean that much from that small of a sample. And, and you know, depending on who the opponents were and everything, I'm not going to go there and tell you that my Boyd projection is going down because Green is out. Or anything like that. That if, if Green is missing time, I'm still totally fine with Boyd. That there's a decent chance he'll get more volume to make up for Green not being there, even if he is less efficient. So I already was drafting a lot of Boyd. Um, would I bump him up on this news? Maybe a little bit. Not not a whole heck of a lot. Um, but I'm certainly not moving him down. People I've seen people saying, oh, well, you know, with green out, his efficiency would go down. I, I don't see it that way. I think there's a decent chance he'd get enough targets to make up for that. So I'm not uh, I'm not looking at it that way. I'm fine with with still drafting where he was or even a little bit higher, perhaps. I think that I'm with Boyd largely in the same camp as you. So when I went back and adjusted my projections today, I ended up with Boyd moving into a 25% target share up from 22. So a 3% increase, which isn't too crazy when you look at um, a six to eight week time frame. And like you said, I just can't get on board with dropping him down given this split. I mean, it is a pretty significant split. It's 17.44 points per game. 
with Green in 12.82 with him out. But as you mentioned too, which is correct, he was not playing with Andy Dalton in all of those games. And there really was a drop off between Dalton, regardless of what you think of him and a player of the caliber of Jeff Driscoll. So that right there, I think is an overreaction that he can make up for, even if there is a drop of efficiency, just in an increase in that target share over those games and what I would assume variance kind of getting corrected. Now, AJ Green, I had to take down about seven and a half to eight percent in the projection of his target share, uh, which, you know, we don't really care too much about that full season projections. Really, what's he going to be able to do when he returns? Now, the one thing that I have trouble with here is it's kind of become a rule of mine that if a player is injured in the preseason or has any, you know, kind of like nagging injuries, you just avoid them because things seem to be a problem. I'm not sure if this injury kind of fits into that thought process. But for me, I think I need to see him start to fall down to around round 10 because this year I'm just trying to get as much upside into my roster as I can. And I'd rather get that uh, spot used in a player that can produce early. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I think that, you know, I'm saying round, uh, you know, six or seven, it would be more that I'm probably off him for now because, like I said, his price isn't dropping far enough. I'd have to see the doctor's reports because they're saying six to eight weeks. Yep. But you know, if it's closer to the six range, we could be seeing him, you know, maybe not week one, maybe week two or something like that. And right. yeah, you got to worry about that injury a little bit. And he already, we, we know the past few seasons he's been injured. So he's a little scary. But once I get past, you know, guys in my wide receiver tiers, once I'm past some of those upside guys, like a Christian Kirk, for instance, you know, if it came down to, I'm getting in the range of, um, you know, AJ Green or Larry Fitzgerald. I mean, I love Larry this year too, but I still might look at AJ Green and say, hey, you know, even if he starts off slow, he could still have some big upside here. Um, so I, I kind of have to, you know, just monitor the, the medical news and, and see where things fall. I like how you used Larry in that uh, comparison there, because that does feel like such a good line of demarcation on a player. And he's an interesting uh, guy to talk about just in general this year. You also mentioned his teammate Christian Kirk, and I believe that later on in the show I might have a question involving him. So I'm looking forward to getting your take on that. Golden Tate suspended for four games. It's possible that suspension might come down. Also, Sterling Shepard, who could benefit from this, has a broken thumb. It seems like it's possible he makes it back for the start of the season. But with those four, with that four game suspension for Tate. Are you looking at Sterling Shepard or Evan Ingram any more heavily than you would have prior? Or are you still, you know, down on them overall, given that Giants offense? So I was already probably one of the bigger Ingram fans this year. Yep. That uh, after his rookie year, I was actually fading him last year, saying, hey, he's not going to repeat those target numbers. But then coming into this year, knowing that Odell Beckham Jr. is gone, um, seeing what he did last year, even with just partial playing time, and he, he still played well. He was really efficient. He George Kittle gets a ton of attention, deservedly so. George Kittle had like, I think the stat is over the past five years, no player had uh, more yards after catch per target than Kittle did last year. And that's wide receivers, tight ends, doesn't matter who you're looking at. You know anybody who had you know you know more than like you know, 20 targets or something, you know, Kittle had the most yak per target. Um, and right behind him, Evan Ingram. 
and again, uh, Ingram higher than pretty much anybody over the past five years with what he did last season. So he was a weapon last season. He was just banged up and hurt. Now he's coming into this year with, uh, I'd say, a very secure target floor as long as he stays healthy. And, you know, there's a little concern about that since he was banged up last year and he already had a slight hamstring thing earlier in the offseason here. But if he comes in even before, you know, Tate uh, was hurt, you could probably say that, uh, you know, uh, excluding Barkley, obviously, Angram was probably the best receiver on the team. That if you wanted to say we want our quarterback, whether it be Eli or Daniel Jones, throwing to our best offensive weapon on the field who's not a running back, that that guy's probably Evan Angram. So I always kind of looked at it that way. Of We don't know exactly how the target share would shake out with Odell gone and with, with Golden Tate coming in. But I, I think Angram stands to benefit a lot from, from that. So I was already pretty high on him. I was taking him above of uh, O.J. Howard at certain points this offseason. They were both kind of the same tier for me. I kind of leave him right there again. But I think if you're somebody who is exclusively drafting O.J. Howard, if you were doing a lot of volume drafting before, before Angram, now you might want to you know consider putting them right side by side where you say, hey, you know, I want to get a little bit more Angram in here. Um, Sterling Shepard, I bump up a little bit for sure that he's a guy we have seen when Odell's been out or when they've had other injuries in there where he can get double-digit targets easily and make a lot happen with them. So anything with Sterling Shepard, I, I don't think you're going to see him necessarily explode efficiency-wise in any way, that he's just going to be one of those guys that if he can be locked in for volume, he'll give you a lot of really good weeks in there. So I, I do bump him up a little bit. It's interesting to have somebody on um... – with a take it like yours on Engram, not that Matt or I have been uh, very pessimistic on, on him this season. We just haven't talked about him that much. And it, that is a good stat. I did not realize how incredible he was in yards after the catch last year. We've all heard the George Kittle stat at this point. Uh, but also, as we talked about in another show before, Engram's rookie season was pretty historic in its own right. So I think it's possible that we are looking at a player that has the potential to exceed our expectations. And I think that this Tate suspension has to help. And I think with Sterling Shepard, it was funny when I first did my pass on projections, he ended up much higher than I was expecting. I went back, looked at the team, made a couple of adjustments and he still came down. But as you said, with Tate out, there's definitely some ground that he can make up on some of these other players that might be trendier picks. And I'll be interested in seeing how his ADP is impacted by the suspension to take. Cause I'm inclined to say with all of this negativity around Manning and around Daniel Jones, that's probably not going to climb up that high. So it's possible he gets pushed into a range where he actually becomes a good value. Yeah. And I think um, when you look at, what the Giants did last year, it's easy to be like, same old Giants, the Giants sucked. And I'm a Giants fan, and I'm a pessimistic Giants fan. <laughs> so it's it's tough for me to say that I'm optimistic about the Giants' offense this year. But if you look at their struggles over the past few years, it really has been more about the defense. That you know, The one year that they were actually good was the year that their defense stepped up, that their defense was doing good. Uh, Shermer had them playing a lot better than they played under McAdoo. Eli had his uh, highest AYA of the past four years last year. The, he had a higher uh, average yards per or adjusted yards per attempt under Shermer in his first year with Shermer than he did in any year under McAdoo, including the one where they went what was it eleven and five or whatever? Because that was the year their defense actually stepped up. So I, I kind of look at this as a little more of a coaching type thing that. 
Eli, yes, we know he's not what he was and even what he was may not have been that great, but Eli still isn't necessarily terrible. And maybe Daniel Jones could even step in and do a good job if Shermer's system is actually working properly. So I'm kind of on that fence of like, yes, the Giants aren't that good, but I don't think they're necessarily some, you know, going to be one of the five worst offenses in the NFL or something like that. Uh, their offensive line should be improved, and that that always helps Eli because right now a stiff breeze can knock him over if a defender even breathes on him. But if you give him time to throw, he can actually make things happen. So I'm not as pessimistic as some people are on the Giants' offense, and if we're getting a discount on some of their pieces there, I, I'll take them. Got it. So I think the takeaway there is if you're somebody that's in multiple leagues, you don't need to forego considering either of these guys on every single team. Um, you can disperse them in here and there. Final player I want to talk about before we move out of going through the news items is Theo Riddick. He's released by the Lions. Apparently, um, he will be making a trip to Denver. I'm not so concerned about Riddick as I think we may have reached the point in his career where he's a non-factor in fantasy. But for Kerryon Johnson, a lot of people are viewing this as a very positive development and thinking that this should, in some cases, dramatically push him up boards. I'm kind of pumping the brakes on that. Where are you? Uh, let me uh, go back one second uh, with yep. the O.J. Howard, Evan Engram thing. Yep. Uh, I am taking O.J. Howard above Evan Engram in non-TE premium leagues. I play a lot of FFPC, and that's where I like Engram better because I expect him to get a lot of targets and receptions, not necessarily the touchdowns, whereas O.J. Howard, I'm a little higher on him there. So just wanted to clarify that for anybody who's going, oh, should I be taking Engram ahead of him here? Straight PPR, probably still O.J. Howard. Nice. Um, as far as Theo Riddick goes, I was kind of already assuming he would be cut that there were some rumors around that all off season. So I had that priced into my carry on price already that I was already saying, Hey, uh, carry on is probably not going to have to compete with Riddick there. And, and, you know, there's no certainty. So getting a little certainty does uh, give him a little boost for me, but I think it's a bigger deal for the other backups there in the Detroit backfield that we know they want to run the ball a lot. Um, we know that they're probably not going to, turn carry on Johnson into an insane workhorse. Uh, he's definitely going to have the lion's share, the carries and the targets back there in that backfield. But I don't see them overloading him where he's getting, you know, uh, what we saw out of like, you know, say like Todd Gurley, David Johnson, like he's, he's not going to get up into that range quite. Um, but so the guys behind him, CJ Anderson and such. And I mean, CJ Anderson can catch some passes too. He's never been a bad pass catcher. Uh, I think those guys actually get a little bit of a bump because when Carrion comes off the field, that's one less guy that could possibly rotate in with them. So uh, I do give Carrion a little bit of a bump, but for me, this was already kind of priced in because I was expecting it was going to happen. So, yeah, I'm in a very similar spot with you there. So when I was going through and building out my projections for Detroit, I had Carrion. Um, I think I had him originally around like 52 or 53% of the carries, 10% of targets. CJ Anderson was then going to control uh, just about the majority of the rushing attempts with a little bit for some of the lower level backs and just a small percentage for Riddick. And I don't think that 
you can have a player like Carrion receiving a large chunk of the target share that was going to Riddick. I don't really see him getting much higher than 12, even 13% seems like that would be a very aggressive number for me. So when I went back and tweaked my projection based upon this news, it only moved Johnson up about 10 or 15 points, depending on how I played around with the variables. So like you said, I think that to a large degree, Riddick, um, and the potential of him being gone should have been factored into Johnson as I don't think it's the type of situation where you subtract Riddick, you're adding things over to Johnson. So I think we're kind of in the same place there. Um, so just be careful when you're making the adjustment for uh, carry on Johnson out there as we don't want you overcorrecting for this news. But what you should be paying attention to is an up and coming fantasy football company called FFB cast. I love this idea. They record custom podcasts for your fantasy league. Right now, they have an ongoing special for draft recap episodes. One of their hosts will break down your league's actual draft. You have dumb friends. They're going to make dumb decisions. Those will get critiqued. You're going to make good decisions. They will shower praise on you and those that earn it. This year, they've added in ADP check-ins with Denny Carter. Denny will give his two cents on where players are drafted relevant to their ADP. FFB Cast provides many options when it comes to covering your fantasy league. They have quick clips episodes where they offer a video segment uh, where they will actually live stream the recording on their Twitch channel while displaying your league's webpage. They have weekly recap episodes as well that are a lot of fun starting right in week one of the NFL season. Great way to kick your league off and get everyone engaged. And they offer the opportunity for you to hire industry experts to make guest appearances on your podcast. So they're making a truly unique, awesome product tailored for your league. And uh, it's just a lot of fun. As I've said before, I helped out uh, with some episodes last year. Really enjoyed it. I think it's a great product. So definitely check them out at FFBcast on Facebook, Twitch, and YouTube, then head over to www.ffbcast.com today for your league's very own custom podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. Johnny got a toy golf set when he was three, and from that day on, he was hooked. All he wanted to do was golf, golf, golf. He'd be on the links before school, after school. All he ever wanted was to go pro. And then, one day, when he was holding his grandson and thinking about his 12 handicap, Johnny realized it just might not happen for him. But you know what did happen for him? He switched to Geico and saved a bunch of money on car insurance. So that was good. And so was hanging out with his grandson. So John plays in a lot of formats and you play in a lot of leagues uh, on the FFPC. And um, you're, in my opinion, one of the more experienced players in a variety of leagues that we have on the site. And one of the things that we talk about a lot on the show is thinking about building your team and kind of playing the game within the game. So no matter the format that you're playing, 
it's kind of its own game and you need to think about the specifics of that league that you're in. That's almost a cliche thing to say at this point, but to kind of give an example, I was in a pros versus Joe's draft last week uh, at the FFPC. And in these contests, they gather up some people that are in the industry and some high stakes players. You enter into a 28 round best ball draft and you try to put together the best team. So instead of just kind of walking into this blindly with a list of players that I like, I open up the FFPC Roster Construction Explorer, which, John, I have to assume you spend a lot of time playing with. Oh, yeah. And I put together a plan for this draft by looking at not only the number of players I'm going to want at each position, but also thinking about when in the draft do I want to make sure I have my wide receiver four. When is an appropriate time to go after my running back six? When do I need to fill in my quarterback two? And elements like that. So I kind of wanted to talk to John about his general approach to drafts in 2019, how he thinks about balancing certain things, and if he kind of has any rules. So I've listed out some of mine in bullet points, John. You, you may have had a chance to look through them. Before I kind of bias you too much with those, from a real high level, when you're putting together a team and you're starting off considering the process for that, where do you start? Well, let me just start telling you, Dave, that I was following along with the draft board for your pros versus Joe's draft, <laughs> and I thought I was maybe having like an out-of-body experience. Like I came in and my, my spirit possessed you and was making those picks with your hands because I, I really liked your draft. I mean that that was like the kind of team I would have put together. It looked great. So I just want to start off. Good I, job I appreciate that. that. I'm, I'm Unfortunately, you, I think you're the favorite. You know, I'd like to think that I was. Unfortunately, though, I uh, – Picked AJ Green in the third round. I actually in the uh, the FFPC high stakes show that the guys over there were doing. Uh, they weren't a big fan. Or uh, some of the team broadcasting the show were not a big fan of the AJ Green pick. Unfortunately, now this injury does not let me really redeem myself. Uh, you know what? You know what? We'll uh, we'll keep the faith here. Okay. Okay. I I, <laughs> I think he'll come around. Um, you know, when it comes to specifically the FFPC best ball dress, which is what I've been writing about a lot this offseason, what I've been doing the most of, it's one of the most fun formats to me because it goes those 28 rounds, so it's deeper. Uh, I really, with the tight end premium, it adds some more layers of strategy there that with some of the shallower uh, best ball type drafts, I feel like when I'm drafting multiple teams, I end up with teams that look really, really similar all the time. That's like, okay, I am in this round. Here are the players that are available to me. It's the same players that are usually available to me. And, you know, who do I want to take among these three guys here that I like taking? And it just, it just gets a little, little bit of a grind. Whereas with the FFPC drafts, there's a lot of different routes you can take to victory. Um, and with the roster construction explorer that Mike Beers put together, I mean, just phenomenal job by him on that. You can really drill down and look at all sorts of different constructions that people have tried and get a feel for has it worked or hasn't it. And, you know, keeping in mind that this is based on historical data and, you know, you could have guys outside of the normal range of success that are that are succeeding at times. You could have a year where all, you know, a lot of the first uh, the RBs in the first couple of rounds stay healthy. The odds are against that happening, but you never know. It, it can happen. But really, we're playing the odds here. We're saying what's more likely to happen. And the first thing I'd say is that whether it's the FFPC format or any other format, uh, an RB heavy start does not usually go well. 
that you can go in there and put in, hey, what happens if I take, you know, four straight running backs to start my draft? And doesn't matter what the format is, the win rate on that is really negative, way below the average win rate of 8.3%. So I think that's that's my starting point there, that when you're starting your draft there, don't go with a ton of running backs. You can go with a running back in the first round or two that, you know, Sean Siegel had a great uh, article this year basically saying, hey, you know, zero running backs still a thing, but particularly in best ball where you don't have waivers available to you to really pursue those other running backs. And, you know, I think this especially holds true earlier in the season when we don't even know for sure who the backup running backs are that, you know, we think we know or we have guesses, but, you know, you could have swings and misses on some of those backups and not hit them. Um, that the you you can take a running back up at the top of the draft that you have these uber backs like Saquon Barkley, you know, uh, Alvin Kamara, Christian McCaffrey. You don't want to skip one of those guys. You know, that that's that's not what you're doing here. It's saying, hey, I got to go uh, zero RB. So, I'm, you know, I have the third pick, but I'm going to uh, take a wide receiver here. You don't have to go that far with it. Um, so it's okay to take a running back in, in the top two and then then kind of have a wide receiver. You just don't want to have too many running backs up at the start. And especially targeting those guys in like the third and fourth round where they're not catching passes. Like there's definitely some big upside cases for Marlon Mack and Derrick Henry and guys like that. But there's also some serious downside there where it's like, hey, if they're not getting the game scripts, uh, you know, are they going to be successful? Derrick Henry last year, you know, he exploded at the end of the season, but he spent most of his time running into stacked boxes. I, I forget the exact stat, but when I was doing some research on the Titans, Henry basically ran into stacked boxes last year at a clip of like five or ten percent more than any other running back who got, you know, 200 touches on the season. And I think the next highest one was James Conner. It was like five or 10% behind him. Like Henry was like 40% and Conner was like 30% that, uh, it was, it was just a ridiculous number. So, I mean, Henry was being used poorly and he, you know, he eventually exploded with some big runs and stuff like that, but he, he killed you for a lot of the season. And when you're not catching passes, it's just, you can have these dud games that are just going to kill you. Whereas the guys who do catch passes have this built-in floor that really saves them. So I, I think a guy like Carrion again, you know, towards the end of the third round, sometimes he slips to the fourth. With him, you can at least look at him and say, okay, maybe he won't have that monster workload, but he will catch some passes. Which, you know, I think that makes him a slightly more appealing pick there, but that whole range of running backs is a little dangerous. So at the top of your draft, I like taking safe players that either have a monster workload up at the top, you know, the Saquon Barkley's, Christian McCaffrey's, wide receivers who are guaranteed a ton of targets. You know, uh, I think you can't go wrong with Juju this year. You know, he he should just get a billion targets and people could say, oh, well, Antonio Brown's gone. He's not going to uh, – Juju's going to start drawing the top coverage and it's going to be harder on him. And to that I say, you know, maybe. I mean there's nothing Juju has – uh, done so far to indicate that he's not talented enough to beat that, you know, being, you know, the youngest player to reach all these milestones. Um, but even if he can't beat that, even if his efficiency does suffer a bit, he should get so many targets. That's not going to matter anyway. So, I mean, he's, he's just a very safe player up at the top. So take the wide receivers, the running backs with guaranteed locked in monster rushing and pass catching workloads and try to avoid, uh, you know, going back to your point of like guys who are injured in the preseason, 
avoid injury risks. I am not taking Todd Gurley anywhere in the first two rounds. That we already know his knee is bulky. They were saying he was fine last year and he wasn't. I'm not I'm not touching that. Melvin Gordon with this holdout. Hey, he could be great. You know, his his price is dropping and everything, but he could legitimately hold out. I'd rather take a wide receiver that I know is gonna play and has also a high ceiling than like say, hey, I can get a slight discount on Melvin Gordon here. So yeah, just playing it safe to start with. Yeah, I completely agree with that. A lot of those points that you hit on, it's uh as with my pros versus Joe's draft, I feel like now you are channeling a lot of my thoughts. And at this point, if there's anybody that's listening to this that is still thinking that uh, they wanted to just stack up on running backs early, I think we've now had enough people talking about going against that, that hopefully they'll reconsider. And I think when I'm focusing on building a team this year from a high level, it really comes down to in those first two rounds. I just do not want to get those wrong. Of course, sometimes that's an inevitability, but I do think that McCaffrey, Elliott, Barkley, Kamara are good enough options this year that I can stomach putting them in early. Uh, so, you know, my approach is going to be make sure that I'm starting off with either a top level receiver or one of those four in the first two rounds. I'm then avoiding running back for a while. And a key thing for me too is I'm not going to get suckered into a Frank Gore type of player starting in round eight. I think that there's been a thought in years past that, you know, rounds eight through maybe even 12, you can build up on some of these guys where you know what you're getting. But from reading some of Sean's articles this year, from having just digested what's gone on in the last couple of years and analyzing it, that just does not seem to be a good strategy. And, you know, there's some other things we've talked about too, like going after second year breakout players and knowing that you'll churn through players, I think is another reason um, or another thing that you really need to consider when you're actually drafting in redraft leagues. So sometimes, you know, we focus on playing something like best ball so much that then we don't make the correction. When we get into those actual redraft leagues and thinking about how you churn through players. Uh, so those are just some of the things that I'm really going to be considering at a high level this year uh, when building my teams. Do you have anything else to add into that? You know, it's funny you're talking about churning. I have a dynasty team last year that was carried to the playoffs by Todd Gurley and Melvin Gordon, who both got hurt. And fortunately, I was good about playing the waiver wire. And this is actually a pretty deep league, but I, I drafted Javelin Samuels and I was the one who picked up Damian Williams. Nice. And those were the running backs I was starting in the playoffs. And I actually ended up winning that league that it's kind of one of those things where, yeah, you know, you – you think about this and you say, hey, you know, I, these studs at the top of the, the draft, I can't lose. And then they get hurt. You just got to you got to play for that depth there. And like you said, ch- churn through uh, churn through the guys. So I think we're on the same wavelength with that one, that uh, especially in those middle rounds, you should still be drafting for upside instead of taking the boring old production. Because even if you miss on a couple, all you need is one or two hits and, you know, it cancels out those messes. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing too is when you have players that you're viewing just as more upside picks, you're more willing to turn through them. So it's almost sometimes a thing in my mind where I'm saying I'm drafting these guys. There is going to be the two or three guys that I have in these roles when we start the season. After week two, if it's not looking like something's going to manifest, then I turn through them and get to, 
a slightly different profile of those players I could churn through. The ones where it was maybe they're behind a player that if they get injured, they you know assume that role. Whereas the guys that I would have taken in the draft were ones that it still looked like we were unsure if maybe when the season starts, they'll be involved. Um, so I think that's another thing I'm going to try to focus on more this year, especially in redraft, is having some positions like that preemptively built into my roster. Kind of a similar thing here too, but you play in Terminator leagues and you've done a number of pieces on the site about these. So could you just kind of maybe at a high level explain the format to us, talk about how you got into it and some of the surprising aspects. And then after we go through that, I want to see if you've learned any lessons in that we can apply to other types of leagues. Sure. So the FFPC runs these and, you know, just, uh, I just got into it through reading about it and seeing, you know, Hey, what, what is this Terminator thing on here? And, uh, I always thought it was really cool that basically it's very similar to their standard best ball draft. Um, those go 28 rounds. This goes only 26 rounds, but what it is, is you eliminate one player after each week going into the next week. So by the final week, week 16 of the NFL season, you've cut from 26 players all the way down to 10 players. And that, that's just enough to fill out your starting roster. So basically you start with a 26-man deep squad and cut a player every week going all the way down. And, uh, you know, the the tournament aspect of it, um, you know, the, the typical part of it is that you have – a 12-week season, 12-week regular season, and if you uh, come in the top four in your league, you advance on to a tournament for the final several weeks there, and the, the highest-scoring team there wins, I forget the exact prize amount, ten, twenty thousand dollars 20000 But um, this year, they're actually offering uh, Terminator satellites as well at the $35 level. That's more like a typical best ball price. So uh, myself and a couple of the other writers here, Monty Fan, Blair Andrews, and Hassan Rahim, we all hopped in one of the first ones that opened up over nice. there at FFBC at $35. And we've been we've been going back and forth on that. I've been sniping Monty here and there, and he's <laughs> he's been bitching to me. So, uh, But yeah, it's, it's a really cool format that it's – it still requires a little bit in-season management that you have to terminate that player every week and you will be terminated from the league in the tournament if you forget to terminate your player. So you, you have to make that call and uh, the, the cutoff is um, you know right before the 1 o'clock games on Sunday. Uh, and if you have a guy who played like Thursday night, you can't terminate him unless you do it before you know, a Thursday night game. But um, – you know, so you got to stay on top of that. But it's still, you know, being best ball, it's still not, you know, uh, playing sit start and doing all the roster management and waivers and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, that, that's kind of why I've gravitated towards best ball, that it's impossible to do too many leagues with waivers mm-hmm. and roster management. It just it just overloads you. So yeah. if you have that need to keep on grinding out fantasy football in the offseason and you just enjoy drafting, best ball is the way to go. And Terminator is one of those things that, you know, it is kind of a, you know, a bit of a hybrid there where, yes, it's mostly best ball. It's still a lot less work than a normal league, but you do have decisions to make in season. It's a lot of fun. And, and you know, I, I won. I did two leagues last year. I ended up winning one of them. I wrote about on site. And um, that was despite the fact that I cut Tyler Boyd after week oh, one so wow. I could hold on to a third kicker. Yeah. Yeah. That one hurt. But I mean, I, I drafted Lindsay and Boyd in like the 25th and 26th rounds. I think that's probably out of, out of all the teams out there, that's probably the best two picks you right. can find at the end of the draft there, you know, 
But uh, and I held on to Lindsay all year. But Boyd, I cut, and I, I was kicking myself for that. But I still ended up winning the league, and some injuries cost me a shot at cash, cash in the tournament that I had. Uh, Cam Newton, DJ Moore stack, which uh, Newton's injury kind of screwed mm-hmm. me. I, I I was without a quarterback for the final week or two there, and uh, Odell Beckham Jr. I had, and him going out in, uh, the final few weeks, you know, really really hurt me. But uh, yeah, you know, strategy wise, it's only a little bit different from best ball in that. You have to consider bye weeks. Mm. If you have a player at a onesie position with a late bye, you know, let's say your quarterback has a week week twelve bye, that means you probably need to hold on to a second quarterback that whole time. Ditto for something like defense. If you draft the defense with a week twelve bye, you know, defense is always gonna be one of those ones that's tempting to cut. That's nice to have too, because they don't score a whole lot in the FFPC, but like you know, you want to catch those big, you know, weeks that you want to catch that variance. But the good thing with them is you know they're not gonna get hurt. You're not yep. going to lose an entire defense. So it's, you know, if you got a lot of position players you want to hold on to, you want to cut back. But if you have a week 12 bye, well, then you're locking in a zero, which, you know, at defense isn't the end of the world, but still something you might want to avoid. So you got to pay attention to bye weeks. And I do skew a little bit towards, I'm not necessarily trying to fill out my starting lineup in the first several rounds, but I do play it a little bit more like a redraft league where I consider, okay, like, you know, if I could only start one of these guys, you know, whereas a, a typical best ball, you know, I might try to get three quarterbacks a lot quicker here. I'm not worrying about that as much because I'm saying, hey, I'm cutting one of these quarterbacks pretty early on in the process. So I'm not worried if my third quarterback is Nick Foles, you know, it doesn't matter. So the intriguing thing for me here is when you're making the decision each week about who you're going to ask. Is there any correlation between that and just in a redraft league? thinking about which player you will start and which ones you'll sit in any maybe strategy for that process that you've come across or am I just kind of hoping for something here that isn't really there? No, I mean, it's kind of similar to that. I mean, sometimes the decision is just made for you. That, that <laughs> guy gets hurt and you're like, well, shit, guess I'm dropping him. Yeah. Um, and other times it, it really is a debate where you got to sit there and say, hey, you know, I mean, I'd say it's you know kind of similar to the waiver process, you know, where you're saying, hey, there's a guy on waivers I want to pick up or a guy I want to put a bid in with my fab, uh, but I don't really have anybody on my roster I want to drop, but I have to drop somebody to do this. So making that decision of like, who's the guy on your roster who's the most expendable? But I mean, in this in this case, it's not like waivers where you're replacing them with somebody. You're saying, okay, you know, who's going to go here? So th- you do look at it kind of on a weekly basis, um, especially if two guys are close. You might say, hey, uh, these are the, the two guys who are in the running for cut. If I if I don't cut this guy this week, I'll probably cut him next week. So which of these two guys is going to give me a better week this week? You know, so before, you know, I'll cut him first and then save the other guy for next week because I think this guy will be better. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Again, bye weeks, injuries to other players. Maybe you're down to four running backs and um, you have only two of those remaining running backs are healthy. Yeah. You know, and you have, you know, and, and the, the running back who's hurt is coming back soon and he's like a superstar. You know, if you had, you know, somebody like Melvin Gordon is hurt and he's missing just two or three games, you know, he's coming back. But you might be hesitant to cut that fourth running back right there, knowing that 
you already got Melvin Gordon out for a couple of weeks. So there, there's a lot of strategy that goes into it. And like I said, sometimes it's easy and you say, oh, the injured guy's going. Other times it's it's pretty excruciating. And sometimes you can really screw it up and cut the <laughs> wrong guy and hate yourself for it. I, or, or you can get lucky and not cut the wrong guy that I was trying to cut Derrick Henry for a good portion of last year in the, the league I had that one that, you know, there's a lot of weeks where I was like, oh, should I cut him this week? I'm like, no, I'm really thin at running back. It was a kind of zero, zero RB kind of team. And I, I held them, I held them, I held them. And, you know, every time I was getting ready to cut him, somebody would get hurt or something else would happen. And then he ended up exploding for me, you know, in the playoffs. So, I mean, you know, it just it just kind of goes to show you that it's like, oh, you know, just, despite the best decisions you can try to make, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> yeah, that definitely does come into play sometimes. I think we see that too, like in, um, in redraft league sometimes, there's a player that you really want things shake out in a way that you think you're going to get him you don't and then after a couple of weeks or into the season you're like okay it actually probably worked out because the player i ended up going at going with it was a much better pick but uh we do want to take a brief second to tell you about our good friends at the ffpc the home of season-long high stakes fantasy football it's been 10 years since the ffpc filled their first dynasty league and they've now grown to be the world's largest dynasty league commissioner with leagues as high as five thousand dollars to enter FFPC leagues are active and competitive and not a single league has ever folded. Brand new startup dynasty leagues are forming right now starting at just a $77 entry in standard Superflex and best ball formats. And for those of you ready for your greatest challenge, take a look at this year's FFPC main event, which again, Friedman and I are really excited to be taking a shot at in this year. What is it? Well, it's the world's biggest event in season-long fantasy football, and this year it's coming at you with a half a million dollar grand prize and over 3.1 million in total prizes. Come to Las Vegas for a three-day weekend of live drafts and festivities at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino, or draft online from the comfort of your home. Main event drafts begin August 23rd and run through the start of the season, so make sure that you head over to myffpc.com, myffpc.com, and check out out the main event love a good deal sail into the season at banana republic factory's mega labor day sale entire store 50 to 70 percent off dresses from 1999 polos from 1699 find your nearest store or shop online only at banana republic factory so one of the cool things that john has done for a couple of years now is using a tight end model that we have on the site i believe it was, was it phil watkins that created the model it was Phil. Phil created it and uh, moved on to bigger and better things, passed the torch to me, and I've been continuing it for the past couple of nice. years. So we've talked, John, in prior episodes, Matt and I, about how dangerous going after young, especially rookie tight ends, can be. I'm wondering, are there any players this year that can have a sustained and immediate impact that are rookie tight ends, and if not, Tell us if there are players from years past that you've looked at that you're waiting for in 2019. But don't feel pressured to give out names if your <laughs> if your article, you know, if it's going to compromise your article. No, no. I mean, I've written about most of these yeah. guys already here. That um, you know, I don't think any of the guys this year are really set up for success, mostly due to team situation. That I think T.J. Hawkinson's a guy that if he was drafted for the right team that he could have a really immediate fantasy impact. I think he'll probably actually be pretty good this uh, rookie year that some people are just avoiding the lines entirely and they're, they're kind of nervous about him and rightly so their offense is kind of garbage. But I think that 
he will be targeted a decent amount this year, but not enough where you can really call him an impact player. Like I don't necessarily project him to be a TE one this year. It, It could happen. It's within his range of outcomes. I think I just don't know that it's more likely than not. Uh, as far as Noah Fant goes over in Denver, you know, he's set up, you know, pretty nicely that they don't have a very settled receiver room there that a lot of second year guys, Sanders is coming back from an Achilles. So you can, you can tell yourself a story where he gets a lot of targets, but again, you know, those targets are going to be coming from Joe Flacco, who, you know, is a little bit washed and, uh, they've got a couple other tight ends there. I, I, I think Jake Butt is finally starting to get healthy. They gave Jeff Hireman another contract last year. I don't think Fant steps in and just is, you know, an every down player or anything like that. So I don't see him making a big pack impact either. Um, the guy I'm probably highest on, you know, as far as relative to price is Josh Oliver down in Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he really popped in the model. He actually had the highest score in the model this year. You know, he wouldn't have been higher than uh, Hawkinson and Fant if he didn't uh, kill the bench press like he did. But he uh, he has a great all around game. He's going into a tight end room that their top guy there is Jeff Swaim, who came over from the Cowboys and really hasn't done much in his career yet either. Is is more of a blocking tight end though. He he did catch a few balls last year. Um, and going into a system where, yes, the Jaguars are a team that has traditionally wanted to run the ball and that their offense was terrible last year. But they brought in uh, DiFilippo, John DiFilippo from uh, Minnesota, who got fired last year because he was throwing too much, <laughs> they decided. So it's possible that Jacksonville is going to throw it some more this year. I don't really think Nick Foles is anything special that, you know, yes, obviously he's got those magical playoff runs, but his in-season efficiency during the regular season hasn't been anything spectacular, but he's probably an upgrade from Bortles, um, you know, and, and Josh Oliver's cheap. You know, that's the main thing here. I'm looking at him as a Chris Herndon type that Herndon was one of those guys in the model last year that again, you know, we know the top guys for the most part are good other than Hayden Hurst, which, you know, I mean, he was, just, he was, he was one of the worst performing players in the model ever. And just, you know, especially for a first rounder, just terrible. Um, but you know, most of the top guys who are being drafted at the top of the draft, we know are pretty good. So that's not a surprise, but Chris Herndon was a guy who not a lot of people were paying attention to was going into a team in a situation where yes, that jets didn't really have much, much on their depth chart tight end wise, but they also hadn't been using the tight end. So a lot of people said, well, they don't really throw it to the tight end, which, you know, it's kind of a you know, chicken or the egg argument. Do, do they not really throw it to the tight end because they don't want to do that? Or do they not really throw it to the tight end because they don't have any good ones, you know? Um, but we saw him go in last year and he, he ended up killing it over there. You know, he, he started off maybe not, not too fast, but then once he got going, he, he was good. So I think Josh Oliver's in a sim- similar situation this year where he's going into a tight end room without a whole lot of other exciting options, maybe not quite as thin as the Jets were last year. And, um, you know, he's going to an offense that a lot of people are really down on and where they haven't thrown to the tight end recently. But you got a new offensive coordinator there. you got a new quarterback. You've got, you know, the other top guy in the room is also just joining the team this year. He's not established in the system. You know, obviously he's established in the NFL. As, you know, a lot of time rookie tight ends have trouble getting going. But I think he's the type of guy that relative to price, he's who I'd be looking for, you know, late in a draft, you know, especially in deeper drafts where you're looking at a third tight end or in T premium drafts or tight end premium dynasty and stuff like that. He's a guy I'd want to add and see where he goes. Nice. Um 
Yeah, we've talked about Herndon a fair amount. Uh, I know Friedman has always been a pretty big fan, so good to hear uh, that you like him as well. Before we close out for the night, we're going to do a little speed round here. And in one or two sentences, I want you to tell me which player you like better. I will allow, though, for your response to the first question to be more than one or two sentences. Maybe it can be a paragraph. That sound good? (laughs) All right. A round two running back or a round four wide receiver? Early round two running back. Okay, nice. <laughs> you can ex- describe it or, or you can explain that if you want or we can just move on. I'll, I'll take Joe Mixon probably just with his potential upside okay. over the receivers in round four. I think that's that's really fair. Um, O.J. Howard or Hunter Henry? O.J. Howard. Yeah, there's not even a question there, right? Yeah, I mean just, just the offenses are on. I mean it's, it's not that um, Sandy or uh, L.A. is bad necessarily. I just don't know if Hunter Henry is going to get the volume. Right. Jared Cook or Eric Ebron? Give me uh, Cook. Cook. DJ Moore or Christian Kirk? This is the one I'm actually really interested in. This is a tougher one. Um, I've been drafting DJ Moore first, but I love both of them. So it feels – I feel dirty fading Kirk in any kind of way. But uh, I, I give the slight edge to Moore. But it's slight. I like both of them. Nice. Dalvin Cook or Damian Williams? Dalvin Cook. Damian Williams, uh, he could be better than people think, but the opportunity for, you know, if anything happens to him, for him to go back on the depth chart if he misses a couple games and somebody steps up and plays well, that's something that could legitimately happen. Whereas Cook, you know, if he misses a couple games, he's still coming back as the number one guy, unquestioned. Okay, I got you. So your delineation there, it's really that Williams can be, or, well, I guess. The running back in Kansas City can just be a product of the system, whereas in Minnesota, Cook, you don't think can really be replaced by anybody there. So the team will have to kind of go back to him regardless. Right. Williams has probably just as much upside yeah. as this point because of because of being in Kansas City. But his downside is just that much larger. And I, I don't even you know dislike Damian as much as other people do. One interesting stat was uh, if you dropped him – into this year's running back class, this year's rookie running back class, um, among all the guys who were drafted, he'd actually have the best speed score out of any of them. You know, if you compared him just to the guys who were drafted this yeah. year, that he's probably actually a little bit better than people remember where they're like, oh, he's a late pick. You know, he's, you know, never did anything in Miami, you know, but I think he's probably a little better than people think. At the same time, Kansas City doesn't have a ton invested in him. And, you know, I think it's just a fragile situation. Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty fair take. Um, For me, I have some attachment to Williams. As you mentioned, the speed score was enough to get me interested in him a couple of years ago, got him on some dynasty teams and then dropped him, Um, which, (laughs) you know, I mean, I think with how things were going for him was bound to happen. But um, so I ended up actually getting Cook and Williams on my Scott Fishbowl team. So I guess I'll... uh, If I had to decide, I don't know, I kind of want to go Williams, but you you make some good points there for Cook. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Williams, the, the nice thing is, for the most part, you can still get Williams after Cook, for the most yep. part. So, I mean, you don't necessarily have to make this decision. I do think it's hard to get both at this point now, though. Yeah, and I think with some of the rules that I outlined earlier, I will be surprised if I'm ever in a position where one of them, I mean, I guess maybe late second round, it could be an issue. But yeah, I do not see ever getting two of them on the same team again, for me being a possibility. No. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, uh, John. Where uh, can people find you and uh, what do you have in the works before the season starts uh, in terms of articles? 
uh, I'm trying to get some more FFPC content out and a couple other um, uh, Dynasty-specific articles coming out. It's just been a, a busy off-season here, not necessarily even just with football, but with other stuff. Yep. Uh, but uh, if go to Rotoviz and just you know look up some of my stuff on there, search for John Lipinski. On Twitter, you can find me at, at FF underscore SKI ball, ski ball. And um, yeah, just look for my stuff on there. And uh, hopefully I will have some more coming out soon. I'll be tweeting that out once I uh, get to publishing here. Nice. Well, I uh, am looking forward to all of that. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can get you back on the show next year. We can make this an annual thing as uh, Freeman's always good for a couple missed episodes a season. Sure. Hey, I'm happy to fill in. Oh, yes. One thing from earlier that came back to yeah. me. Uh, the name of the other running back on Detroit that you should be looking at now that Theoretic is gone, Ty Johnson. Just want to throw that in there. Go look him up. He could be getting some third down work and taking some of those Riddick targets, depending how things shake out over there. Oh, so that, just just file that name yeah, away. Guys. Great point to add. I actually had the pleasure one time of being instructed to go look that name up and, and looking it up and being pretty <laughs> impressed. So, yeah, go check it out. That's uh, But that's going to do it for today's show. Again, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at DaveCapenFF. And let's see if I can get it at ff underscore ski ball i was gonna get there but all right even better so uh, <laughs> yeah uh so check in next week um i should mention we might be publishing the episode normally we try to come out on tuesday but we have some i have some things in the works for next week so we might come out later in the week uh just an fyi so until next time remember it's not a fantasy if you believe it This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion.